Let's pray together. With thanks, we come to you, Almighty God, for your word. What a blessing it is to have a written record of the things that happened both to Jesus and through Jesus and to his disciples and through his disciples. And we pray that as we open up this text today that it will live in our hearts and minds and we'll be able to picture it clearly in our minds but also walk away from it with a thankful heart for what we've learned. Bless these things to us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, in the last few weeks, we've been all over the place with Jesus in the text we've looked at from Matthew chapter 16 and 17. From Caesarea Philippi to the top of the mountain and then back down into the valley. All events that took place in regional Israel, far from the madding crowds in Jerusalem and the regional centres nearby. But in our text this morning... All that changes and Jesus is once again in Capernaum and straight away under fire. Now it's fair to say that Jesus and his disciples had been away from Capernaum for some time even though this small town had been a place where Jesus and his disciples had spent a significant time during his brief ministry. But Jesus was now not back in Capernaum to continue his public ministry. That door was now closed and his intent, for the most part, was to direct his time and effort towards his disciples so that they would begin to be more prepared not only for what they were going to have to face in the days leading up to and after the cross, but also for ministry after the resurrection. So rather than giving his time to the needy crowds, it was the disciples who were his focus and his disciples who in our text this morning receive a lesson they would never forget. And our text tells us about the occasion upon which the lesson was based. No sooner than he returned to Capernaum than guess who was waiting for him? No, not the religious authorities who would soon track him down, but of all people, the tax collectors. Yes, no matter who you are, even if you're the son of God, taxes are inevitable and tax collectors are always ready to pocket what you owe. Now, of all the gospel records, Matthew's gospel is the only one of them that records this particular event. Now, why would that be? Perhaps it's found in Matthew's own background. He was a tax collector. And this may well have been the reason why this event was of interest to him. And so he recorded it. And as he did, the event became something for us to note as well, as we note following matters from the text. First, let's note from the text how Jesus as a Jew was subject to this tax. How Jesus as a Jew was subject to this tax. 
From verses 24 and the first part of 25, we see how it all unfolded. The text says, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said to him, does your teacher not pay the true drachma tax? That is to say, the question they asked clearly expected a negative response. But Peter surprised them by probably saying, yep, he did, he does. And he did so quite emphatically. Yes, he does pay the tax. Now, it's important to note what this tax is and this tax in question here is not like a property tax. It's not like an everyday income tax. It's not even a sales tax. It's not a GST. This tax was a religious tax and one based on the scriptures, as we read in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, There we read that the Lord commanded through Moses that every male Israelite over the age of 19 would be responsible to pay the amount of two drachmas for the upkeep of the temple and that they would do that once per year. Now, we heard quite a lot this year about the temple as we worked through 1 Kings 1 to 11 and we heard about the construction of Solomon's temple and the great expense that he went to build it over seven years. But that temple was destroyed in 587 BC and now a temple stood on that site, one that Herod's, known as Herod's temple, which took 47 years to build. Imagine the expense of a 47-year-old building being built. And given that the temple was such a focus for the worship of God, for every Israelite, it's little wonder that even though there are thousands of years between Exodus 30 and the time of Jesus, this temple tax was still so needed. Now, two drachmas doesn't sound like very much to us but they were something close to two days' workers, two days' wages for a regular worker. Think about that in your own terms, if you know how much you're paid, a fairly significant amount of money even under basic wages. The other thing Exodus, tells, Exodus 30 tells us is that this tax was a flat tax. That is, everybody regardless of whether they were rich or poor, had lots of income or no income, was to pay this annual amount for the upkeep of the temple. Now, why was it that these tax collectors then expected a negative response from Peter? Commentators suggest that they'd so often seen Jesus contradict the scribes and the Pharisees over matters of religion and interpretation of the scriptures that they might have thought that this would just be another matter of conflict when they spoke to Jesus. But in doing so, they missed a fundamental distinction in the reasons why Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees and the scribes so often. He did so when the Pharisees took the word of God and added layers and layers of man-made requirements and commands on top of it so that they could quite conveniently escape from completing the heart of what God required. But where and when the Old Testament scriptures required Jesus to do something, he was all for it. And this was one of those occasions when the requirement of the scriptures was plain and simple. Then also note that the question they asked Peter wasn't a trap. 
On so many occasions, the Pharisees and scribes sought to trap Jesus by their questions, but this is not one of those occasions. In fact, the tax collectors seem to be showing a great deal of respect for Jesus here by approaching Peter instead of Jesus so as not to embarrass him. And it seems they genuinely wanted to know the answer to the question. Of course they did. They were tax collectors. So what do we learn from their brief exchange? Just this, that Jesus, though he was the very son of God, was born under the law. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's so easy for us to forget and so easy for us even to overlook that Jesus was a Jew. And as a Jew, he was born under and had to live under the law, even though by nature, as the sinless second person of the Trinity, the law was not designed for him. The law was designed to set forth reality that sinners need grace. And Jesus wasn't a sinner. He didn't need grace. And yet he submitted himself, being born under the law, to the law, for your sake, that he might fulfil the law, that he might bear the penalty of the law, as well as fulfil the, the righteousness required by the law on your behalf. Second, we note that, as, that Jesus, as the Son, had grounds to ignore this tax. We see this in verses 25 and 26, where we find that after assuring the tax collectors that definitely, yes, Jesus does pay the temple tax, Peter finds Jesus, and before Peter can get a word out of his mouth, Jesus is already aware of the issue and is right on top of it and gives Peter instructions about how to pay this tax, even though Peter hasn't mentioned that it's due. Don't lose sight of Jesus' foreknowledge in this event. Though Jesus is in the house and Peter is outside somewhere talking with the tax collectors, Jesus already knows what transpired in the conversation. Later in John 21, when Peter responded to the question Jesus asked of him, do you love me? He responded with the words, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know all things. Peter knew by experience that the Lord knew all things. And this is one example. J.C. Ryle says here, there is something unspeakably solemn in the thought that the Lord Jesus Christ knows all things. It's a solemn matter because it helps you to realise that even before you speak or act, or even if you only have the intention of speaking or acting, in your heart, these things might be hidden from others, but they're never hid from him. And surely that must make us very solemn as you reflect upon your actions, your thoughts, your decisions, your words, your intentions. 
So Jesus spoke to Peter and set up a scenario for him to ponder just after he came through the door. Peter, let me ask you a question. Do the kings of the earth, do they extract customs tax and poll tax from their family or do they extract it from strangers, their citizens, their foreigners? Jesus asked this Peter this question about civil taxes and spoke as he did of two taxes. One was an import and export duty, a customs tax, the other a census-related tax, a headcount tax. You pay tax because you're one of the country. And Peter answers him, well, of course, they extract it from strangers, from, from others, not from their family. You can't imagine King Charles taxing Prince William, can you? That's what you expect. It's logical. What's the point that Jesus is making? Does suddenly he he want Peter to have a good grasp of the tax system and the way kings and queens operate their royal households? Or is there something else he has in mind? Well, it's clearly the latter. Jesus is using this little scenario to point out to Peter that because of his own unique relationship to God, because God is his father and he is his son, that he's exempt from the temple tax. Think about it. The temple is the house of God. And if Jesus is the son of God, then the temple is the house of his father. And if kings and queens don't tax their own family, then being part of the family of his father in that very unique and special way that he was, the son of the father, then he was exempt from the tax. More than that, if you read through Exodus 30, you'll see that this temple tax was charged in order to support the provision of offerings, to put it more clearly, sacrifices for atonement. And if there was anyone in the whole of Israel who did not need to provide money to provide sacrifices of atonement to be offered on his behalf, it was Jesus, because he would be the sacrifice of atonement. And so his argument is solid, even though in a few moments he makes arrangements to share, not only his share to pay, not only his share of the tax, but Peter's also. That's grace for you. He could well have argued with the tax collectors that he was exempt. But what would that have achieved? And besides, to refuse to do so would have been inconsistent with the purpose of his coming. Philippians 2 reminds us that he was and is equal with God in every way, but he laid aside his glory and he humbled himself and became man for purpose of saving us So it would be inconsistent of him to insist on his own rights and stand his ground for the sake of two days' wages, which he probably didn't have. But there's something else here, isn't there? Something that is hinted at in this exchange, and that is the unique privileges that we have as the new people of God, the new Israel. See, Jesus used the term sons, as in the plural of son. He said the sons don't pay the tax. 
So there's a sense in which he's saying to Peter, I don't need to pay the tax because I am the son and you don't need to pay it either because you're part of my family. You too are a son, not in the same sense that I am, but a son nevertheless. And has been pointed out, kings and queens don't tax their family members. All who belong to the Lord are his sons and daughters. Now don't get me wrong here, that's not an excuse for you not to pay your taxes. Because Jesus also said, render to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. Third, and I love this part, verse 27, we learn that Jesus as God miraculously paid the tax. It's interesting to note that Jesus didn't have the true drachma that he needed in order to pay that tax. He didn't have in his pockets or his piggy bank or his bank account two days of wages that were required. And so it seems that neither did Peter. Judas was the treasurer of the twelve and it's likely that he held the bag with their funds. Jesus himself had nothing. Nothing set aside for this day when the tax would need to be paid. Nothing. But look at what he did and how he obtained the tax for himself and for Peter. And in doing so, in this miraculous event that followed, we see again a testimony to Jesus' deity. Let's think on verse 27 then. Jesus said, however, so that we do not offend them, which is interesting to note, go to the sea, throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Now the word shekel in the Greek is called a stater, S-T-A-T-E-R, a silver coin that was common in Jesus' day that was equal to two drachmas. It was customary for the people of Israel to go into the temple with one stater and pay their tax. This was the custom because the other option meant having their money exchanged at the temple by the money changers and they charged a fee, a bit like an extra tax on your credit card when you use a credit card or debit card these days. And so it happened. Peter goes fishing, drops in a hook, catches a fish and there in its mouth is the coin. Sufficient payment for Peter's temple tax in his own. Now it reads as a miracle and of course it is. It tells us too of something of Jesus' foreknowledge that we spoke about before. He knew about the fish with the coin in its mouth. He knew where that fish would be. He probably commanded that fish to be where Peter would be. He knew that Peter would catch it. And more than that, he caused the whole thing to happen. Jerome, the first century historian, said, I don't know which to admire most here, our Lord's foreknowledge or his greatness. And he was right. Both of them are there. And both testify to the deity and the power and the wonder of the Lord Jesus. 
Well, apart from all this, what lessons do we learn from the incident? Well, I think these follow. First, the story teaches us about using our freedoms. Next slide, please. Thank you. As believers, we already enjoy tremendous freedoms through the gospel. We are freed from subscribing to the doctrines and commandments of men. We are freed from the burdensome yoke of the ceremonial law. We are freed from being outsiders to God and have instead been brought into his family as sons. And yet hanging on these freedoms does not mean that we must stand on them when giving up them up would be for the benefit of others. See, Jesus could have insisted on those freedoms. He could have said, go tell those tax collectors to go and jump in the lake with that fish. I'm the son of God and I'm free from the temple tax. He could have done that, but he didn't. Because he was teaching Peter and the other disciples about the shape of Christian ministry. Again from Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus who though he existed in equality with God made himself of no reputation being obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. See the freedoms that we are given are not freedoms for the sake of either self-indulgence at one extreme or refusing self-denial at the other. If those freedoms we enjoy are going to be a hindrance or a stumbling block for others coming into the kingdom of God, there's only one thing to do and that's give up those freedoms. Is that how you look at the freedoms that are given to you, the blessings and the resources the Lord has showered upon you? You have the freedom to use them for yourselves, to pay off that mortgage to pay that rent, which you must do. Or you can give up your freedoms for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of God's work. And that's a call to you to recognise your freedom and your responsibility and how they balance out together in your life. But surely the second lesson here is about how the Lord provided. Peter certainly had to learn that lesson, didn't he? Imagine how he felt, casting in his line, pulling in that fish, opening its mouth and finding within it what was needed. Imagine that sense of certainty. Imagine that sense of wonder that everything happened just as Jesus had said, that feeling that he would never ever again doubt that God could and would provide for his needs. And that's just what God teaches us in his word, isn't it? Paul says in Philippians 4, My God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And he says that in the context of encouraging the Philippian church who are giving financially to his support. We are not ever to think that we can outgive God. 
nor that we give to him will be left bereft. No, when you go out to serve God and do your duty and use your freedoms for his glory, you may be assured that the Lord will provide you with all you need and in doing so, you need to learn to trust his providence and trust him. Will you trust him? That's the question. With your needs that you know of? This text gives us every reason to do so. It's hard, yes, to to let go of the purse strings and let God be Lord of all. But you'll be blessed if you do and he won't let you down. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the wonder of your word, the things that happened that were for the sake of the disciples but also for our sake. We're encouraged by this, that you commanded a fish, just as you commanded a whale long ago, in which Jonah would live on a grander scale. But you commanded a fish to swallow a coin and then be caught and give up that coin. Thank you for this. Not all of us are used to finding, catching fish and finding money within them. But we are so grateful to you for the way in which you provide for our needs far beyond ways that we can ever, ever know. And we trust you because you provided your son and surely that was the hardest thing to do. Providing our needs for you is easy. Please help us to have the right attitude to remember to thank you often and to pray often, not only for our needs but for the needs of the kingdom of God all across the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.